The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. John chapter 3, John the third chapter. I have the task of looking at one of the most familiar passages of Scripture and bringing it alive to you, but I can't do that. The Holy Spirit can, so let's ask him to do it. Father, this morning we look at a very familiar passage, um, passage everybody in here has probably looked at at some point in time, certainly John 3.16, many of us memorize from time of childhood, being toddlers, first verse in Scripture we memorize. So, Spirit of God, it's, uh, it's your task to guide us into truth. I'm just your messenger. So, would you take uh, the words of your scripture and apply it to our hearts today? In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. His resume was quite impressive. He was a Pharisee, which means he was an intellectual guardian of the law. Uh, he would be like a PhD in Old Testament theology right now. He was also part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling council of 70. There's actually 70 Sanhedrin selected from the nation of Israel, men of high esteem who would interpret the law, apply the law, and make sure that the nation obeyed the law after they did it first. So it's 70 plus the high priest who headed it up. It would be like taking the U.S. Senate and Supreme Court and combining it into one. That's how esteemed it was, and that's how important it was in Israel's history. So he was a Pharisee, an intellectual guardian of the law, PhD in Old Testament theology, part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that would interpret the law and apply the law and make sure the law was filed in Israel. And he was also called by Jesus the teacher of the law, not a teacher of the law, but we're going to see in a few minutes in verse 10, I think it is, where he says, uh, you being the teacher of the law should know these things. So his resume is quite impressive. I mean, he was a guy who was equipped to handle any question that was thrown at him by anybody in Israel in that day. He could cross all his T's and dot all his I's, theologically speaking. It was impressive. He, he, he was at the top of the heap. In fact, if we were to meet Nicodemus, he probably had a home in the suburbs, one down on the coast. He probably had a three-chariot garage and had box seats to the camel races in Jerusalem. He had it all. He had it all. From his view, he was at the top of the ladder, but as he looked down, he was disappointed. He knew there had to be something else and something more. He had everything, but it wasn't enough. And so he winds his way through the dark alleys of Jerusalem at night. At night. Two significant words. If you look in the scriptures, it says that. If you look at verse 2, it said he came at night. Two words that will follow him in his resume. Two words that he will hear the rest of his life. He came at night. I submit to you, although he came at night, at least he came. He, he came not out of curiosity's sake. He came out of conscience sake. He came not, not for others. He came for himself. This was not for a corporation. It wasn't for all the Sanhedrin. It was for him. And, and we're not sure what got him there, but I can only speculate he, he would say he knew the signs that Jesus did. So being a Pharisee and being part of the Sanhedrin, perhaps he was in the temple. Certainly he was in the vicinity of the temple just a few days before when Jesus had upended the tables and now Nicodemus' heart was upended. And so with all of his impressive credentials, his VIP status, his extreme knowledge of the word, he comes to an itinerant Galilean man seeking some answers. You see, when he peered from the top of the ladder and looked down, something bothered Nicodemus. So he came at night. You see, he had everything to lose and he didn't know what he had to gain. 
See, if he was seen going to Jesus seeking answers, he could lose his position, he could lose his power, he could lose his prestige, he could lose everything he spent his whole life working for. Everything that was important to him could collapse. If the teacher of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin, and a Pharisee was seen coming to Christ. So he winds through the back alleys and pathways of Jerusalem. He ducks into the shadows and he comes. Maybe it was when he heard Jesus cry out, you've turned my father's house into a house of merchandise. Maybe Nicodemus for a long time, his heart has been seared. He's known what's going on in the temple is wrong, but who was he to stand up to the others? Everybody was benefiting. Everybody's making a profit. Everybody was happy. Why buck the system, right? But there was something that bothered Nicodemus. There's something he saw in the works of Christ or heard in his words that caused him to go looking for Jesus. I want you to picture the scene for a moment because this is Nicodemus' dilemma. The dilemma of Nicodemus, when he comes looking for Christ, he puts his neck in a guillotine in some sense because everything he has is at risk. So if you look at verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We've already established he's a Pharisee. That means he is hyper-vigilant, hyper-religious. He's the guy that made sure everybody obeyed the Sabbath, right? And you remember some of the weird stuff they did on the Sabbath? There were 614 laws and Nicodemus knew every one of them and he wanted to follow every one of them. He wanted to make sure he obeyed every one and that everybody else did. He knew the law, he loved the law, and he kept the law. There were some weird things about the law, though, that they had added to the scriptures. For instance, the scriptures say, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So the Pharisees, they came up with, well, what exactly does that mean? So they did things like you couldn't pull a chair back from the table because if you did, since we had dirt floors, that would be considered plowing and you can't labor on the Sabbath. And so you couldn't pull a chair back unless you plowed. That made for a fun day, didn't it? And ladies, you remember what else? You remember what? If a lady could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath, how'd you like to show up today without being able to look in a mirror? You remember why? Because if you saw gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it, and plucking would be considered labor, so you couldn't look into a mirror on the Sabbath day. It's crazy. You could could, uh, swallow vinegar, but you couldn't gargle with vinegar because that would be considered work or labor on the Sabbath. I mean, they put all these extra things on the law that God had gave. These were the traditions of men, and Nicodemus knew everyone. He made sure he observed them, and everybody else observed them. It would court God's favor. It would be the way to earn God's favor. He he was doing good works. He was a good man. He was a moral man. He was a brilliant man. But he's a man searching for answers. So he comes to Jesus. He walks in this room, and I, you know, I, I wish somehow, I, I wish we could see a video of that. He walks into a room. Here is this highly esteemed scholar, a leader of the nation. He walks into the room. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm looking for Jesus. Of course they knew why he was there. And he looks around the room, and it would be the disciples. You know, disciples would be the opposite of some highbrow scholar. They were fishermen and a tax collector or two. And I imagine as they looked at him, they, they, they had to think, what is he doing here? What does he want? What is he after? Nicodemus came looking for answers to the questions that he had. He steps into a room, and he looks at Jesus, and he says, uh, Rabbi, look at verse 2. Rabbi? In verse 2, it says, the man came to him by night. There's a two-word circle. Those we're going to come back to them at the end of the message. And they said, Rabbi, that's a term of respect. It's really a term for teacher. You're my teacher, teacher, Rabbi. Uh, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. Now, I don't know if Nicodemus is just throwing platitudes at Jesus or if he really believed that at this time. 
But, but he says, well, we know there's something different about you. You come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You're doing things that nobody else can do. You see, word had already spread about this water into wine business. And certainly he knew what had happened in the temple. And John is really big on this word sign. Circle that in your Bible because we're seeing that over and over in John's gospel. At the end of the first miracle, the wedding feast of Cana, it says this is the first sign he did. Last week we saw the word sign used three times when he went into the temple. This was a sign. John says when he wrote this gospel, John chapter 20, he said, the reason I write these words is because I show you these signs. That's what he's saying. So you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Make no mistake about it. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. And John's saying, I want to show you that his claims are true. The entire gospel of John teaches that. John says, this is why I write these things. And so he says, hey, we know the words you speak and the signs you to do. We know your words and your works indicate you're from God. In my mind, I see Nicodemus having some sleepless nights. Up until now, he's had some sleepless nights. He's heard about the wedding feast of Cain. He's heard about the temple and what's happened. Maybe even witnessed and saw it. And maybe his conscience is seared. Why haven't I done something about this? Why? Who is this man? He doesn't have the credentials. He doesn't have the academic acumen and training we have. He's not part of our inner circle. But yet he's done something we should have done. And he comes to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, a term of respect. Your words and your works indicate you're from God. And during those sleepless nights, and I don't know how many they are between John 2 and John 3, maybe just one, maybe many. I imagine Nicodemus' mind roils over and over and over. He does these works. He says these things. Maybe he's the, nah, couldn't be. The Messiah? So picture a tennis match. Nicodemus has served. You're from God. Your words and your works tell us that. You would expect Jesus. I mean, I'm a southerner from the deep south. New Orleans is deep south. You're hospitable to, folk, hospitable to folks when they come in. In fact, we go places. My wife's from the south. Here. We bring little gifts to every place we go, and we give to folks. We were hospitable. You come to our house, we're hospitable. You would expect Jesus to return uh, Nicodemus' serve and say, Nicodemus, I've heard about you as well. Because really what Nicodemus is saying, hey, I'm impressed. I've heard what you've done. But that's not what Jesus does. He serves a volley back to Nicodemus. Bam! That drives him backwards. There's no hospitality. He's not saying, hey, come on in. Let's sit and have a cup of tea and I'll tell you what I think. But he looks at Nicodemus and look at the words that he speaks in John 3.3. Very familiar words. Nicodemus, I tell you this, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Welcome to my world, Nicodemus. (laughs) This man with all of his brilliant acumens and accolades and achievements, this man who can interpret the law, quote the law, memorize the law, know the law, and apply the law, Jesus just pulls out every prop in his life. Nicodemus, everything you've worked for, everything you've done, everything you're trying to achieve, you don't have. In fact, Nicodemus, I I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's unpack that. What is he saying? I think what he's saying is, Nicodemus, your religion is futile. He's talking about the futility of Nicodemus' religion. He says, Nicodemus, you've got a lot of religion. I mean, you are a good man. You're a godly man. Your credentials are impeccable. 
You, you know the law, you love the law, you keep the law. Nicodemus, you're not only a Pharisee, you're part of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, you've done all these great things and all these great works. And Jesus drops a bombshell on Nicodemus and says, your works don't work. You're trying to achieve what you can only receive. Nicodemus, you've got to start all over again. These words shocked Nicodemus. How do I know that? Drop down to verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? I mean, he is shell-shocked. He is like the New England Patriots last Sunday night. <laughs> just, I, I didn't expect that. You expected that? I mean, I'm glad I'm not a betting man. And they were just shell-shocked. Who are these guys in green? Jesus is flipping Nicodemus' belief system like he flipped the tables in the temple just a few short days before. Nicodemus, your worldview. Nicodemus, your theology. Nicodemus, everything you're doing. Basically, Nicodemus, you're wrong. Now, I know there are some competing things here. There's nationalism, Jew, Jewish nationalism, where they wanted to get rid of the Romans and the temple was central to everything. And so there were those who were doing that. But Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is a theological issue. He says, Nicodemus, you've got a problem. The problem is what you're doing really doesn't matter. It's not an external thing. It's an internal thing. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about praying more, giving more, worshiping more, doing more, serving more, memorizing more. It's about an internal transformation, Nicodemus. Unless you are born again. The word born again talks about the regeneration of the heart. It's a dead man who's made alive. Regeneration is that act by which God imparts eternal life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Nicodemus, your religion's futile. Imagine your Nicodemus. You've got to be bewildered at this point in time. I spent my whole life doing this. And now you're telling me that's not what I, I don't get it. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Look, look at what he says in the next verse. In, in verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter into a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? And every woman in here says, amen. <laughs> right, ladies? I, I mean, now let's give Nicodemus some credit. He's a brilliant man. He goes, it seems like he goes the physical, and maybe he is, but maybe what he's also saying is, hey, we can't go back and restart everything, can we? I, I, so maybe, maybe it's just physical. Perhaps it is. It's what seems to be at face value, but maybe saying, doesn't matter. I can't go back and start over again. You see, what we're going to see is this. I like what Lakato says here. The continental divide of scripture, the initial dateline of faith is in this verse, 3-3. Three, three. Nicodemus stands on one side, Jesus on the other side. Christ pulls no punches about their differences. Nicodemus inhabits a land full of good works, good efforts, sincere gestures, hard work. Give God your best, and his philosophy says God does the rest. I mean, that's the good old American way, isn't it? You work hard, you achieve, you, you, you do everything you possibly can. I mean, that's true for us, isn't it? I mean, we're Americans, even better than Americans, we're Texans. That's even a step higher, right? Yeah, there we go. Finally got some excitement in that crowd. I mean, really, I mean, we, we, if, if, if somebody's going to give it to you, it's not worth it, right? We know that. Somebody calls and says, you've won, and you hang up your phone. You get a thing in the mail, come to this meeting, you've got a vacation to wherever, and you say, you, you're like, hey, am I even open it up? I just throw it away. Because we know, hey, if, if, if you don't work for it and get it and earn it yourself, it doesn't matter. And that was the prevailing theological, the, theology of that day. It, it, the continental divide is, hey, Nicodemus, it, it's not your good works. It's not, your, it, it's not all your hard work. And, 
In fact, Jesus' response is, your best won't do, your works don't work, your finest efforts don't mean squat. Unless you're born again, you can't even see what God's up to. Hey, Nicodemus, you think you've got a dilemma because I'm doing good works? You've got a greater dilemma. It's the futility of your religion. It's the futility of thinking I can do enough to somehow please God and earn my way to heaven. And you can't do it. Many of us grew up that way. Many of us grew up in churches where it was serve more, do more, pray more, show up more often at meetings or whatever it might be. And, and so you were a good person, you were a moral person, you were a religious person, very religious. But you didn't know Jesus. You had not trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins. You were religious, but you weren't righteous. And you came to Christ even after you were a good religious person. I'm curious. I've done this all three hours now. How many of you would say that was my life? I was a religious person. I was a moral person, a good person. But I didn't come to know Jesus till after that. Raise your hands. Let me see. Raise them high. Keep them high. I, I would say, let, take a look around. Every, it's at least one-third of us. I would say all three service, at least one-third of us. And, and that's Jesus' point. Hey, it's not by what we do. Your radical corruption demands a radical redemption. And there's nothing you can do about this. I'm going to do it for you. You see, the confusion in the Old Testament scholars, the people here, were they were thinking it was an external exchange where Christ is saying it's an internal exchange. And so uh, Jesus says, Nicodemus, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Christ is saying is your religion may inform you and reform you, but it's only me who transformed you. You can have a ton of religion, but not an ounce of salvation. That's what he's saying. You can be religious but not righteous. You, you can know all about religion but not have salvation. And so what he's doing, he's pitting the work of the Spirit against the works of man. The work of the Spirit against the works of man. And so that, that, that's the battle that's gone on here. That's the service back and forth on this supposed tennis court that I pictured. And he says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That which is born of the, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel at this. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You can see the wind blowing through this room where Jesus meeting with Nicodemus and the disciple and said, hey, it's like the wind. You can't control it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't tell the wind where to go. It comes. That's what the spirit of God does. Nicodemus, not about you. It's about what I've done for you. Now, some of us need to hear that message this morning because we think it's about us. We think somehow we can earn God's favor, we can earn our salvation, we can work our way, we can do all these things. I mean, uh, half side of my family were folks that grew up thinking that. They thought external conformity was the answer. They thought if I did enough, if I didn't die with some mortal sin on me, then I would be okay. And Jesus is saying just as physical birth takes place, spiritual birth must take place. And when physical birth takes place, who's applauded? The baby comes out and says, great work, young man. You did a great job coming out of there. We look at the lady and say, I mean, you deserve a medal. You've carried this baby. You've birthed this baby. You've gone through all this pain. We honor the woman who gives birth to the baby. And we fan the man who's passed out on the sidelines, right? Thinking he's done all the hard work. Uh, I, I never forget when Sarah was born. I think it was, uh, I, start, I, I hadn't eaten all day and... I start to pass out. The last thing I remember the nursing, it's always the biggest ones that go down. <laughs> and then I went. I was gone. So you look at this and he says, hey, the, the mother pays the price of birth. She doesn't enlist the baby's assistance, solicit the assistance. 
get advice from the baby. The baby can't even take a breath without the umbilical help, much less navigate a path to life. And Jesus is saying that's the same thing here. Birth is a passive event for the baby. The mother does all the work, and he's saying, I've done everything for you, Nicodemus. It's all done. And he turns to you and me, and he says, hey, I've done it for you too. Quit trying to achieve what you can only receive. Quit trying to work for something and earn something that's a gift. And so he looks at Nicodemus and he says, hey, you've got to be born of water and the spirit. Now there's debate among scholars what the water is here, being born of the spirit. We, this is spiritual regeneration. We're talking about it. The next verse says, I was born of the spirit of spirit. So what's the water here? Well, there are those that would say, unless I'm born of water, that means baptism in the spirit. I can't enter the kingdom of God. So they're saying you've got to be baptized to be saved. I don't think that's what this is teaching at all. Uh, first of all, baptism, as we understand it, the church wasn't born until Acts chapter two, three years later. So if, if you were to equate this to baptism, you're talking about John's baptism, which was a baptism for repentance, but for sins and not into as believers baptism, such as we are in the church, because church doesn't come into being until Pentecost. Secondly, let me submit to you. If baptism is necessary for salvation, don't you think Jesus would be baptizing a bunch of people? I mean, really, if, if baptism was necessary to be saved, now, I don't want to diminish baptism. Baptism is important. If you or know Christ as your Savior, you need to be baptized. You publicly proclaim, you come out of the shadows and proclaim that Christ is your Savior. But if baptism was part of the salvation package, don't you think Jesus would be baptizing people? Next week, we're going to look at the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Look at verse 2 in chapter 4. Verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although, John adds, Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were. So who did Jesus baptize? He didn't baptize anybody. If Jesus was doing the, if Jesus said salvation is part of the, baptism part of the salvation package, I submit to he'd be baptizing people. And John said he wasn't baptizing anybody. We were. We were. He makes that insertion. So, so what is water? He says, unless you're, baptized, unless you're born of water and the spirit. It's not baptism in the spirit. Well, some would say, what's well, the natural water is the amniotic fluid. So they're saying, unless we're born into this world and then we're reborn by the Spirit, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I guess I can see where you get that. To me, it's kind of tautological. doesn't make a lot of sense because everybody reading this is already born. I mean, why would that matter? But it could be. Personally, I think he's talking about the concept of the washing of the Spirit in our lives. We see that in other places. We see it in other places. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5. I'm not sure who's back there. Jim or Terry, somebody back there? Anybody back there? Titus 3, 5. Can you pull that up for me? In Titus 3, 5, it says this. It says, we are saved not because of righteous things we do, but because of his mercy. He saved us through what? The washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the washing and renewal come through the Holy Spirit. So I think that's what he's talking about in John chapter 3. And he looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, why don't you understand this stuff? I mean, Nicodemus, why are you surprised by this language? Do not marvel. Look at verse 7. I said you must be born again. Uh, Nicodemus, you should know these things. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be in verse 9? And Jesus says, and you, the teacher of Israel, don't understand these things? The, circle it, it's an article, the teacher of Israel, not a teacher of Israel. He may have been the head honcho of all the teachers of Israel. Can't be sure of that. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know, and we bear witness of Nicodemus, you should know these things. How should Nicodemus know these things? Because in the book of Ezekiel, it talks about this. It talks about internal transformation rather than trying to keep the law. It says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws. So he's saying your your internal corruption, your internal corruption demands a, a, a radical transformation and that transformation comes through the cross. Nicodemus, it comes through me. And so what we see here is Christ saying, hey, I appreciate everything you do. There'll never be enough. And that's what he says to us. Never be enough. You can't pray enough, give enough, serve enough, show up enough, to find your way into heaven. You can't achieve what you can only receive. And and then he goes on and he he uses a a rather obscure section to refer to what he's about to do. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And whoever believes may in him have eternal life. And so Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, you remember when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? I, I imagine Nicodemus has gone through the files in his mind. Serpent in the wilderness, serpent in the wilderness. Uh, now, Nicodemus didn't have div- chapter divisions like we do, but we know that's Numbers chapter 24. You can take a look at it later. Maybe look at it, turn there if you want to. So he's referring to something that happened within the nation of Israel. He, he, here's what happened. I'm sorry, Numbers 21. In Numbers chapter 21, it says, they set out from Mount Hor, from the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And on this journey, Uh, the people began to complain against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up into Egypt to die? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this miserable food we get day after day. Now, I can understand that. Same diet every single day, I I would be loathing it as well, okay? And, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people in Israel died. So the people, I mean, they're just a bunch of whiners. I mean, if they had a bumper sticker back there, it'd stop global whining. I mean, that's what they were doing the whole time. And God, God's fed up. And so he sends these snakes. They bite the people. They begin to die. The people call out to Moses, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord he may re- that he may remove the serpents from us. Moses interceded. The Lord said, Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, on a stick, and it shall come about that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on the stick, and it came about if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, that's a pretty obscure thing, right? You know about it because I've taught about it numerous times. They would later name that serpent Nehushtan, which means a piece of bronze. And they use it as an article of worship that's found in 2 Kings chapter 18. But Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, here's what I want you to know. You've been bit by a serpent and you're going to die. And for a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, that was hard to admit. Hey, I am rightly related to Abraham. I was born into Judaism. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm part of the ruling council. And I've got sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus, you've been bit by a serpent. And we're not going to put a snake on a stick. We're going to see a savior on a cross. 
And Nicodemus, whoever believes in him, is going to have eternal life. So Nicodemus, all your works won't work. Everything you've done doesn't matter. You can't buy, earn, or find your way into my presence that way. One day you're going to see me lifted up like that serpent in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21 and Nicodemus, unless you believe in me, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus had to breathe deeply. But then Jesus made an offer to Nicodemus that we all know very well. Because it's the same offer he gives to us. And it's an offer of salvation. And that offer is made in the most familiar verse in God's word. Many of us memorized it years and years ago, John 3.16. So if you know it, quote it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, Nicodemus, I love you. I appreciate all you're doing for me. I appreciate your trying, but... Nicodemus, I love you. I love this world so much. I'm sending my son, my only son, and you can have life, eternal life, if you believe in him. And Nicodemus, he didn't come in the world, the next verse, John 3, 17, to judge the world, but he came in the world to save the world. And Nicodemus, the next verse, verse 18, if you don't believe this, you judge yourself, Nicodemus. But I want you to know, here's the offer. The offer is, I love you so much. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. John chapter 20, he who believes that Jesus is the Christos, the son of God, has eternal life. So what does that mean? It doesn't say he who achieves, he who succeeds, he who agrees, but he who believes has eternal life. John has talked about this word belief over and over. I did this the very first week. I want to remind you of it. Belief means we're not saved by what we do, but we're saved by what he has done. We're not saved by what we do, but trusting in what he's done. I can tell you all day, I believe that stool will hold me up. That's intellectual assent. I can describe that stool to you. It's got four legs. It's made out of wood. It used to be brown. It's painted black. We need to repaint it black because the black's coming off. If I turned it over, I did this last hour, I thought it told me where it's manufactured, and it's got the word McKee written on the bottom. I have no idea who McKee is. But that's what it says. I believe that's too homey. Belief in John's gospel is this. It's when I put my 200-something pounds here. That's Belief. Belief is not intellectual scent. It's not trying to earn my way, not building new stools. It's saying I know who he is and I trust him. You see, we're saved not by what we do, but by trusting what he's done. Mark Batterson is one of my favorite authors in a book called Wild Goose Chase. He talks about the fact that uh, his grandfather died when he was uh, seven years old. When he was six years old, he went to visit his grandpa. I loved to visit his grandpa. Grandpa was a geologist and he had a great fossil collection. And Batterson says, uh, my grandpa's fossil collection was in the Garden of Eden. It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil and I was Adam. Think about that for a second. Okay? 
It means it's off limits. He can't touch it. He's like Adam in the garden, touch everything but that. So he said there was a day when uh, his grandparents were outside visiting with his parents and he was only six years old and he snuck into his grandpa's study so he could look at the fossils. He said, I became fascinated with the fossils. So I did what I know I shouldn't do. I reached in and grabbed a fossil and I looked at it and I put it back in the box it was in and I grabbed the second one and the third one and when I grabbed the fourth one, I dropped it. It fell into a million fossil pieces. I was guilty. I was wrong. I was scared to death. I knew it was off limits. I'd broken the rules. I'd done what I wasn't supposed to do. I went outside with my lips quivering, my chin shaking, tears in my eyes to tell my grandpa what I'd done. We walked into a study. My grandpa assessed the situation. I was totally unprepared, he writes, for my grandfather's reaction. He walked into the room. After assessing the situation, he picked me up. He gave me a hug. He didn't scold me, but he leaned into my ear. And he said, Mark, you're far more value to me than a fossil collection. And he stopped right there. Didn't say another word. I didn't deserve it. I deserved the opposite. So my grandfather died about a year and a half later when I was seven. I've looked back on that life many, on, on that episode many times in my life. And I've thought, that's what the scripture means when it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't deserve any of this. But my grandfather exercised grace and extended it to me. So I want to conclude. Worship team, would you guys join me up here? I'm going to come down before you come up, Pam. There you go. John chapter 19. Would you turn to your Bibles there? John chapter 19. We're going to stop there. Nicodemus has come in the darkness of night. He's lurked in the shadows and the doorways because he's got everything to lose, right? If anybody sees him, he knows he can lose his power, his prestige, his position, and everything. So Christ is hanging on the cross and he's dead. Crucifixion's taken place. I pick up in verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted him permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. Let's stop right there for a second. If you go to the parallel gospels, it says the body was on the cross and the men took him down. Men, plural. Verse 39. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Look at what it says. Who had first come to him at night. There are those words. He hid in the shadows for a long time. But then he courageously came out of the shadows. The tragedy of the cross. And he said, I'm all in. I'm all in. The Sanhedrin doesn't matter. The Pharisees don't matter. Being the teacher of the law doesn't matter. I'm going to honor Jesus. And so he and Joseph of Arimathea unstaple the body of Christ from the cross. And he helps embalm the body of Christ and lays him in the garden tomb. Out of the shadows into the light. 
so two groups of folks here today. Those of you who are good moral people, upstanding people, who know about Jesus, but maybe have not placed your faith in Jesus. I'm going to ask you this morning to come up here and make that commitment for the first time. If you're unsure if that's happening in your life, I'm going to be right up here and I want you to come stand with me and walk out of the shadows and say, Pastor Gary, I want to make sure that Christ is my Savior this morning. And then some of you know Christ, but you haven't been courageous for the Savior. It took the death of Jesus for Nicodemus to come out of the shadows. And I pray this week you'll come out of the shadows. You'll proclaim who he is. So all this is done and achieved by him, not us. That's why we can say it's amazing grace. So let's stand together. And if you want to make sure that Christ is your Savior, if you're unsure of that, I'm asking you to make your way up here and boldly and publicly proclaim this morning that Christ is your Savior as we sing this great hymn of the faith. for the washing and regeneration of the heart for each of us. We say thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Bless you.